Hello, everyone. Welcome back to LA Not So Confidential. I'm Dr. Shiloh, and I am here with... Hey, it's Dr. Scott. We're back. Yes, we are. It is June 1st, and welcome to LA Not So Confidential weekly content. It's here. Yes. <laughs> so today we have our psych episode. Next week, you're going to get a vintage case that is a very cool case. We are also going to have an extra special guest related to that Get Vocal on June 11th, but you'll hear more about that next week. Yes. But lots of cool stuff coming up. Yes. So we have that good vocal. Then we also have our Hollywood walking tour this weekend, our last walking tour, you know, sort of after the peak of COVID was, since it was an outdoor event, it was incredibly successful in downtown LA, which we would love to do that one again as well. But this is a Hollywood walking tour that's going to have the best of the Hollywood crimes in that area and a little bit of paranormal-ish stuff discussed as well. And a little bit better of an environment for hanging out with you guys, for the people that show up. Yes. So we're very excited. We know we know how to plan it now. We're yeah, like, okay, exactly. a little before party, a little after party. <laughs> exactly. I'm very excited about this one. There's some places that I have not seen the insides of before. So we have some cool places on our stops and just excited to hang out with some listeners. I think following the high of CrimeCon, we're like, okay, we need more interaction. <laughs> Let's do <laughs> exactly, this. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. It gets our energy up as well. And and happy Pride Month for those of you that are LGBTQIA as I am or LGBTQIA friendly and supportive. We appreciate it. Thank you so much. We Should are be some good Pride stuff happening everywhere yes. for people yes, now yes, that yes. things are opened back up again. So speaking of Hollywood. Right. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. Well, I just want to give a little recap. First, if you haven't checked out our last episode, it was on internet trolls. We covered the despicable behavior of trolls who essentially harass families that have already suffered tragedies. And we dug up the research on the psychological makeup of such individuals, which I'm so glad that research is being done. It's terrible that it has to be done, but it was there. We found it. And if you think the dark triad was bad, it outdoes it in this episode. It gets yeah. worse. They so. had to add another leg, the dark tetrad. So there you go. Unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't I hope let's keep it at four people. Let's not invent any other behaviors that Please. make it something Please. else. <laughs> but today's topic is battered woman syndrome. When I was doing research on our psychogenic amnesia episode, this concept came up in the Colleen Harris case. And I really wanted to circle back to it at some point. We have titled it battered woman syndrome. And you will see if you dive into some more of the contemporary research or When people are speaking about this phenomenon nowadays, that you may hear the term battered person syndrome, of course, because anybody, regardless of gender or sex, can be a victim of this type of abuse and behavior. However, we're really going to start at the beginning from when this term was coined and much of the historical context we're going to be talking about today, really that research was done on women who were being abused at the hands of men, most often their husbands. So it was a very specific type of relationship in which most of the research is done. So we're, we're still going to be going with that lingo, but we just want to acknowledge that, of course, anybody can be a victim of this phenomenon. 
Yeah. And thank you for saying that. Anyone can be a victim. And one of the things that we want to do through this podcast and, and has been one of our goals since the beginning is to provide a background and a paradigm for understanding where people can break down misconceptions, where we can dispel myths about mental health issues. We can destigmatize mental illness and we can also make a bigger conversation that there's not a particular profile of an individual who is battered. Right. It is the profile of the relationship and the perpetrator that ends up trapping the person in that web of abuse. Great and point. we'll be able to talk more about this. As you all know, over the last couple of months, there's been an enormous controversy in a legal proceeding that we will get to eventually when the dust settles a little yes. bit, but not Lots right now. About. So as far as trigger warning goes, of course, we're going to be talking about intimate partner violence and some that results in murder. So we want to refer you back to our intimate partner homicide episode for more background on that specific topic. And that's episode number 30. And then you may also recall that in episode 88, we discuss domestic violence and the connection to mass casualty events. So just a little bit more background for you guys, because we're going to be really honed in on this phenomenon today. Yes, thank you. So we're going to cover several cases today that will weave together the information and the understanding and the education and research we have on this phenomenon of battered woman syndrome. So on January 28th, 1977, Joyce Bernice Hawthorne called police to report that she had shot her husband. She was arrested, charged with, and convicted of first-degree murder. And during a retrial, the defense claimed she had shot her husband in self-defense. We'll hear more about that story in a little bit. We're also going to talk about Donna Bechtel. She was convicted in 1984 and 1987 of first-degree murder after killing her abusive husband. During the event, her intoxicated husband repeatedly beat her, bashing her head into the floor. And when the beating finally stopped, he passed out. She armed herself with a gun, shooting him. Dr. Scott, you want to start us off with a clean definition of battered woman syndrome before we get into the nitty gritty of this phenomenon? Absolutely. So we're going to break down some further definitions in this episode. But when we discuss battered woman syndrome in regard to forensic cases, we are talking about this. The concept that a woman who is a victim of ongoing, life-threatening, intimate partner violence feels that her only means of escape is to preemptively murder her partner before they can harm her or kill her. Yes. So that is the definitive description, the definition of BWS or battered woman syndrome, as we're going to be discussing it in today's episode. Right. But we definitely have to go back to the beginning of when this concept was first coined and developed. And of course, that was done by Dr. Lenore Walker. Dr. Walker is both an educator and a forensic psychologist. She's licensed to practice psychology in several states. She's also board certified by the American Board of Professional Psychology in clinical and in couples and family psychology. She often testifies in forensic cases, especially those where someone's state of mind is impacted by gender violence events. And she has done this since the 1980s. She recently retired as a professor at Nova Southeastern University's College of Psychology, where she spent almost 20 years training doctoral and master's level students in forensic and clinical psych. And she still leads research there and leads research teams on a number of issues, looking at things like validating the survivor therapy empowerment program. Another 
project working on false confessions with women, which sounds super interesting, and yet another on sex trafficking survivors. She's the director of the Domestic Violence Institute, Inc., a nonprofit company where their mission is to educate policymakers and communities around the world about domestic violence and other forms of gender violence. And like I said, she's been doing this work since the 80s when really is is the time period we're looking at the birth of battered women syndrome in this historical context. She wrote her landmark book, The Battered Woman, in 1979, and she followed up with Terrifying Love, Why Battered Women Kill, and How Society Responds, published in 1989. So one of her premier and most well-known concepts, something that I use all the time in my community work and sometimes, unfortunately, in my private practice work as well, is what is called the cycle of violence. And I encourage anyone to Google cycle of violence right now and look at the images because it is a very easy to understand graph of how violence works on a cycle and is perpetuated by the dynamics in the relationship. Dr. Walker had conducted a study of about 1,600 battering incidents. And in that, she found that two-thirds of the cases had a cycle of violence that repeated in three distinct phases. The stages are... First, the tension building phase, then the acute battering incident, and then the tranquil loving phase, also known as the honeymoon phase. So in the tension building phase, Dr. Walker documented that only minor battering, such as slapping or verbal abuse, was occurring within the relationship. And it's common for women to attempt to calm their abuser down during this phase, or they just try and steer clear of him. Eventually, the abuse worsens as the cycle progresses. Right. So what's happening here for the woman is that she is, and I'm using this in air quotes, allowing herself to be abused in what she perceives as minor ways. And it's all relative, right? Because she's been here before. She's been in this cycle before. And what she's really hoping for is that the abuse doesn't worsen, but it ends up being a double-edged sword because her appeasing or her docile behavior then ends up encouraging the abuser's belief that he has the right to abuse her. So, And also sets up an unsteady baseline. So she may may be judging it. Like you said, it's relative. Like that baseline could have gotten way worse over a period of years. So that someone from the outside would go, what are you doing? Why are you here? Exactly. It's all skewed. But I also want to put the caveat on the fact that the terms that we're using all comes from Dr. Walker's research. So please don't confuse what we're saying as victim blaming at all. These are direct observations from Dr. Walker in her research and her studies of how these two parties, how their behavior and how the distorted thinking plays off of each other in these scenarios. So when I say something like she's allowing herself to be abused, it is like Dr. Scott was saying, this is a buildup. It's all relative. It's, It's something that is very contained to this particular couple. Additionally, in this phase, what you will see is the woman will use cover stories to account for his behaviors. Really, it's kind of the last-ditch effort in an attempt to control something, to control other areas of her life and perhaps the perception of other people. So if people are starting to notice things and ask questions, using those stories and covering up is very common behavior for the victim. However, what this does is it ends up increasing the isolation factor 
of her surroundings and then removing her further and further from people who could possibly be of help to her. Yes. Creating and and reinforcing that bubble where then her baseline for what's acceptable behavior gets continually skewed. Now, going on to the second phase, the acute phase, as it were, the verbal abuse and the physical abuse now are going to become much more intense. The violence in the acute phase is to really a more significantly serious degree. And then it also results in more severe injury and sometimes even death. And during this phase, the battered woman has no control and is unable to reason with her batterer at all. And I think the stat says that a victim can expect, and this is a terrible way to say it, expect that if it has gone beyond four incidents of severe violence, Mm -hmm. it is going to result in hospitalization and it is way more likely to result in death. So each increasing and ongoing event raises the likelihood that there could be an event which causes or results in death. Because it's just escalation after escalation. So it makes sense. Dr. Walker notes that there are even times in which the woman is so attuned with this twisted cycle that she will incite a violent act in order to have sort of this false control over it or kind of get it over with and hope that the violence is to a lesser degree than if it had happened organically. And this is because she's she's in very real fear of death. So if it's like, oh, let me, let me incite something to kind of make it not so bad, okay, then the cycle can keep going and maybe, you know, we'll come back down to to the more, I don't know, docile behavior or the the making up types of behavior that they'll get to afterwards. But ultimately, if you think about it, she really has zero control and only the offender can end the violence. So this phase, the acute phase is where women have been so savagely beaten that they end up losing their lives. So it's very, very dangerous. But next we have the honeymoon phase. So after that acute phase, if they survive it, horribly have to say that, the honeymoon phase begins and the abuser may feel some remorse or they may express some remorse. I'll never do it again. I don't like I don't know why you do this to get me so mad, but I still love you anyway. Like very gaslighting type of language is generally used, but they will begin to act in a way that at least is presented as loving and caring toward their victim of this abuse. There can be begging for forgiveness, promises, like I said, I'll never hurt you again. And then this period of calm and positivity is often welcomed by the battered individual of like, please, okay, it stopped. I've got some relief. Due to the prior abuse, she wants to believe that her partner can change and then will go into this inner dialogue with herself to try and convince herself that this could be the last time. This could be the last time that that, that it'll happen. Maybe he'll learn this time. And during this period of calm, she will often tell herself that the nice guy that she fell in love with is returning. And most likely the worst of all this is over. Mm-hmm. And it's it's just in a way, it's some sort of bizarre survival. Self-preservation. Dissonance, right? Yeah. For sure. You know, it it seems that we can make a real comparison here to Seligman's 
theory of learned helplessness to some degree. Essentially, that's the notion that or the belief that nothing one does matters. And so we sort of give up in hopeless situations and just suffer the consequences because we can't change it anyway. In the 1960s at University of Pennsylvania, he did these famous experiments, mostly with animals, dogs, where they were in a cage where there was a very small little barrier that they could jump over. So they were in one section of the cage. They could jump over to the other section. Hold on. Pet trigger warning right Uh now. Oh, sorry. Pet trigger warning. (laughs) Yeah, thank you. We've learned our lesson. (laughs) But what they would do in this experiment is the bottom of the cage, they would put an electrical shock and see if the dog would jump over to the other side. But to some degree, they said, okay, the dog it goes through this process of learned helplessness because they don't realize that they're not going to be shocked when they get to the other side either. So they just kind of sit there and take the shock is essentially is what it does instead of jumping over there. I probably completely butchered that study and there's a lot more to it than just that. But we've learned so much in recent decades about more of the biological nature of helplessness rather than it being all learned that this doesn't 100% explain the phenomena anymore. But I thought it was kind of worth a mention because, you know, the question inevitably comes up, why do women stay in these relationships, right? So there's there's some different psychological and social theories that we can talk about here. Well, yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that too. I wasn't making the connection here. But now that you brought that example of his work, it reminds me that is definitely part of brainwashing techniques. Yeah. And it's also torture techniques. And I think the basis for Seligman's work may have come from reports back after World War II of survivors of prison camps. Um, prisoners so, of war. Yeah, prisoners of war. So, and which of course now we have international accords that are supposed to prevent that to some extent. But yeah, that is, it's a fascinating theory. And in addition, there's also the idea of the social learning theory of intermittent reinforcement occurring here. So that's another sort of basic psych principle, which is really mm-hmm. fascinating, which thankfully they don't abuse animals so much, but there's a lot of really great studies that used pigeons getting food, where we yep. understand now that intermittent reinforcement is the most powerful type of reinforcement for yep. shaping behaviors. And we know now that when behavior is intermittently reinforced, it is also the most difficult type of behavior to stop. Mm -hmm. So the abuser's unpredictability and quote unquote randomness of their behavior keeps the victim walking on eggshells, totally hypervigilant, but also holding out hope that this will be the last time, especially when the moments are loving or pleasurable. It encourages the victim, her behavior of staying in the relationship and trying to convince herself that it'll be different this time. It's worth it. Maybe I can change or alter my behavior in order to stop. Yeah, it's it's despite all of the negative, those random moments of positive is what keeps us coming back regardless. If you're a pigeon pressing a bar and getting food, or if you're somebody sitting at a slot machine in Vegas and you get rewarded with a little bit of winnings, that's what's keep what keeps you going even when you're not getting a payoff in those senses. Or if you are still taking some abuse, the positive times are what keeps you around and keeps hope alive, unfortunately, in these situations. So when we look at battered women's syndrome, Dr. Walker describes it as this, quote, a woman is considered battered if she is subjected repeatedly to coercive, be it physical, sexual, and or psychological abuse by a man forcing her to do what he wants her to do, regardless of her own desires, rights, or interests. They have experienced at 
least two acute battering incidents, often going through the cycle of violence twice. So, you know, when you talked about that stat earlier, Scott, of four times of this cycle is really likely that she's going to end up hospitalized, if not worse. I mean, to even really say that this is the cycle of violence and a battered woman, we're already talking about half of that. She's gone through this cycle twice. I mean, that escalates fast. Yeah, it seems to, you know, reinforce the perpetrator's behaviors too. Like you said, I got away with it before. I'm able to do this. Yeah. I can think of myself as, you know, the king of my domain and get away with this. It's, I mean, I hate to say it because it's cliche. It's a vicious cycle. It's definitely uh-huh. a vicious cycle. BWS has also been identified as a subcategory of PTSD. And although not all battered women meet all the DSM criteria for PTSD, there's enough of a number to do this. So a form of trauma treatment is usually most helpful if you can get to the person, if you Mm -hmm. can reach out to them, if you can encourage them to seek out help. So just as a quick review in order to get everybody on the same page about the criteria for PTSD, you have to have been exposed to a situation in which you thought that your life was at risk or at least of great bodily harm was going to happen. And then you react to that incident with intense fear. So those are the necessary diagnostic criteria, although that's not to say that a lot of other types of trauma can occur as well. The event has to also instill helplessness or horror and then have a number of particular stress symptoms that are present for at least one month. Again, like I said, that's the PTSD diagnosis. It does not mean that there's not broader and just as serious types of trauma that can happen to individuals as well. So in an IPV situation, the virus violent incidents and the pervasiveness of the abuse as a whole can be considered these traumatic incidents. So in cases in which battered woman syndrome was being used as a part of the defense, an expert called to testify would ideally present psychological evidence and stats that focused on the experience, the mental states, and the perceptions of a victim of domestic violence in order to help the jurors to really, I guess, appreciate how the defendant reasonably believed that they needed to use deadly force against their batterer. The impacts of intimate battering are very, very well researched in terms of the effect that the severe trauma has on victims. There are so many studies focusing on human biological responses to traumatization. One such study found, I'm going to quote here, victims of trauma respond to contemporary stimuli as if the trauma had returned without conscious awareness that the past injury rather than the current stress is the basis for their physiologic emergency responses. Remember that quote, folks, because sometimes what's happening to you presently, biologically in the moment is not necessarily triggered by the traffic. It could have been triggered by something else and the traffic is bringing it back. Yeah, it's this delayed response, which we see in trauma all the time. Absolutely. And in this article that we referred to, written by Dr. Vanderkolk, the biological responses to traumatization were marked by, and this is another quote, chronic physiological hyperarousal to stimuli that is similar to past trauma. In the state of hyperarousal, the person's ability to make rational assessments in a calm fashion is impaired. Instead, the person responds to threats as emergencies that require immediate action rather than collected thought. I want to go back for just one second to something we did, I think, 
nearly at the beginning of when we started this podcast, which was the fictional miniseries with Jessica Beale. It was the season one of The Sinner. Right. And that's a perfect example of that opening scene when she's on the beach and she gets triggered by something that happened almost a decade prior. And she acts as if it is happening all over again in the moment and completely becomes dissociated. So powerful. Yeah. So everything we're leading up to basically says that we have to understand these biological responses in order to explore the effects of domestic violence on a victim of that violence. So if we take more of a scientific approach, the effects of battering, it could open a door in establishing much more reliable methodology against which expert testimony could be weighed. So important and fascinating to me because we're going to talk about sort of something that happened in media that changed the national conversation on this phenomenon, but we'll get to that eventually. But I think that it's not just about getting data. There also has to be a cultural awareness and acceptance to move away from blaming victims. Like that's one of the most important things is understanding that your biology, your physiology is changed by the experience of trauma. And we have to have a conversation about that. Absolutely. And I think, you know, what Dr. Vanderkolk's work is saying is the biology of trauma is so important and maybe it's easier for juries to wrap their head around that because it's, you know, we can map that and we can track it and biology is easier to understand than psychology, especially when you can look at the differences and the changes and brain mapping and whatever else. So, you know, people need something concrete sometimes, unfortunately, but if that culture changes there, that would be optimal, of course. But, you know, I think when you talk, as we're starting to talk about this in a legal sense, I think it can get really meta if you think about this hard enough, because in a traditional murder case, the defense is trying to provide evidence that speaks to the defendant's psychological makeup and offer some mitigating circumstances as to why they did what they did. But when you're looking at a battered woman syndrome case, the defense is going to introduce the same stuff, of course, but also talk about the deceased abuser's actions that led to the trauma response in the defendant, which can come off as victim blaming in any other sense. And it's really interesting to look at it when we shift our perspective of this really specific type of trauma that's happening on all sides of it. But it's just, I don't know. I think it's just so interesting to look at how we can shift and look at this in these sort of 3D, 4D concepts when there's just pervasive, pervasive abuse happening where someone is using this in a self-defense mechanism. So let's look at the quote-unquote profile of a battered woman. And you sort of alluded to this at the beginning. I'm, I'm not sure what our audience has in mind as to who the battered woman is, but she comes from all types of economic and cultural and religious and racial backgrounds. She has a doctorate. She's uneducated. She's a millionaire. She's on welfare. She lives in a big city where there are resources that are plentiful. And she lives in a rural town where she is miles from anyone that can help her out in her situation. So she's really you. She's me. She is as diversified as women come. Typically, a battered woman is going to have poor self-image and low self-esteem, oftentimes facing her feelings of self-worth on her perceived capacity 
to be a good wife and be a good homemaker, regardless of if she's a stay-at-home mom or if she has a successful career of her own outside of the home. She behaves in ways that tend to match her abuser's rigidity and his traditional values regarding home, family, and sex life. Even if she tends to have more liberal beliefs than her abusers in this area, she she feels as if she has to match that because of the violence and the consequences if she doesn't. She may also believe that she's at fault for not stopping the abuser's violent behavior. So really, she becomes, you know, even though she is clearly a person who had a sense of self perhaps before she even met this person. But now in this relationship, after the cycle of violence, she is trapped between guilt and violence and denial to some extent. So even though she can start out as literally anyone, these are the commonalities that we tend to see once they're in these types of relationships. So when we look at the battered woman who kills because, of course, not all battered women are going to kill their perpetrator. There's been some components that have been identified in women who kill their abusers that we also see as commonalities. It is things like her perception of the danger in the situation, the severity and brutality of the violent abuse, the presence of abuse, including incest towards perhaps their children. So Dr. Walker and Dr. Angela Brown conducted a research project in what they did is they compared 40 homicide cases with battered women against probably a population of more like 100 battered women who had not killed their spouses, but had been able to leave the relationship at some point. And what they found was that the most significant difference between the two populations was the perception of violence of their abusers, meaning that the women who killed perceived their abusers as using greater violence, violence more frequently, and violence that resulted in more serious injuries to them, which makes sense. But like a higher level of fear. Yeah, definitely a higher level of fear. And when they were able to sort of code that... It's not as if they were seeing women who left who were meeting kind of that heightened threshold. So, you know, you were seeing significant numbers in that the women who killed were really at the edge. They were at the, that was the last resort for them. Additionally, they also described their abusers as making more death threats. They also were more often using weapons to terrorize the women and In the research project, the study, they described the men as, quote, growing continuously more dangerous towards the women and the children. So they were able to sense that at some point. In the study, you you know, we've we've talked before about how women tend to commit violent acts and what it what do we what's always the go-to when they say that women commit murder? Like what means women poison, right? Yeah. Like yeah. historically it's been poison. Right, right. Things that are a little bit like give you a buffer, they're not up close and violent and that sort of thing. They're I think secretive. We, yeah, they're secretive. And certainly I think that's true when we're talking about planned and organized types of behaviors, maybe women who are more psychopathic. But in in this case, in Dr. Walker and Dr. Brown's study, they found that 75% of the women used firearms to kill their abusers. 13% used edge weapons like knives. 5% killed by using a vehicle. There was one woman in their study that used a sledgehammer to kill her husband. One woman out of the study used poison. And there was an incident of one woman who had set her husband on fire. They weren't sure if he had already been dead or not, but regardless, they they kind of 
said, okay, let's put this in the category of she set him on fire. And then there were four women who hired someone else to kill their husbands. But I mean, predominantly, we're looking at situations in which we're talking about firearms or knives. And those are pretty up close. They are pretty violent. There were a handful of instances where they were able to record where the husband, the abuser, had actually thrown the gun at the wife and said, shoot me before I shoot you because I'm going to kill you, which I thought was super interesting, just that there were more than one instance of that. Yeah. And that level of, I'm telling you, I can't control myself. Yes. Yes. Very interesting. I mean, you just, you read that and you think, put yourself in those shoes and what would you do? Because the the power is shifting, but what's going to happen the next time you turn your back or if, you know, this de-escalates because he's literally telling you that. So fascinating. Psychologically, the battered woman tends to sense an increase loss of control in the batterer and his level of violence. So with the women who kill, they, they reported that there was something, they couldn't really put their finger on exactly how they were sensing it, but there was some intuition behind this is really at a level that it's never been before. And there was also some indication where she would sense that not only is the violence increasing, but she is somehow less essential to him than previously. So it was like, whoa, he has no use for me anymore, basically. Many women who act out in self-defense and end up being involved in killing their spouses after these cycles of violence talk about really contemplating suicide first. They've, they have absolutely contemplated that as their only option to end the pain and the suffering. And you and I have talked ad nauseum about the overlap of suicidal ideation and homicidal ideation, that this doesn't surprise me at all. And who knows how many women have have done that because of these types of situations that they're, they've been in. I don't have those numbers, but definitely these women that they talk to have vocalized that that is something they consider during their cycles of violence. That's fascinating stuff. And it lays the groundwork for understanding that now there are legal precedents Mm -hmm. that have been set. And, you know, there's just as much of a legal term here as it is a psychological phenomenon. So we really need to address the history of it in each of the 50 states as well as Washington, D.C., expert testimony on battering and its effects is currently admissible to some degree in legal proceedings. And the phrase battered woman syndrome is most often used in criminal cases where a woman was on trial for murdering her intimate partner and during her defense attempts to introduce evidence that she was a victim of IPV and the murdered victim was her abuser prior to the perpetrator's death. So there's like a, there are several points that have to be hit in order for this to be utilized. What we have seen is that this is the type of criminal case that presented the biggest problem for the courts, usually involving a woman who killed her intimate partner while he was asleep, unconscious, or when she was not under what we usually think of as an immediate threat of attack. So there has been an incident, it's occurred, it stops for some reason, and then she takes action. That's basically what we're trying to say. What ends up happening then is that the defendant is not afforded the claim of self-defense because the immediacy factor is then absent. And that can be difficult for people or juries to wrap their heads around. So let's look at a couple of landmark cases in the area of battered woman syndrome expert testimony. Yeah, this is one of those cases where definitely you need an expert to come in and talk about this because it is hard for people to understand 
why that immediacy of feeling like your life is threatened right now is not there, yet you still take drastic action to kill someone. So in Hawthorne versus State of Florida, this took place... Well, the decision was 1985. The case took place in 1982. The defendant shot and killed her husband and was convicted of first-degree murder. And on appeal, the court reversed her conviction, holding that evidentiary procedures had not been followed. So she got a second trial in which her legal team sought to introduce expert testimony on battered women's syndrome and... The court ruled the testimony inadmissible, and the defendant was convicted of second-degree murder. Again, the appellate court reversed, citing evidentiary procedures, as well as the finding that the expert testimony of Dr. Lenore Walker, a clinical psychologist, on battered women's syndrome should have been admitted in light of the fact that the specific defense asserted was self-defense which requires some kind of showing that the defendant reasonably believed it was necessary for her to use deadly force against her husband to prevent imminent death or great bodily harm to herself or her children in this case. The appellate court stated that the expert testimony would have been helpful to aid the jury in interpreting the circumstances as they contemplated the reasonableness of the defendant's belief and state of mind at the time. Well, duh. Yeah, you (laughs) think? You think? So the appellate court instructed the trial court to analyze the admissibility of expert testimony according to a three-pronged test. So whether one, the expert is qualified to give an opinion on the subject matter, two, the state of the art or scientific knowledge permits a reasonable opinion to be given by the expert. Because right when, when experts are getting on the stand, they're giving you their opinion based on their training and their expertise and their research. And then lastly, the subject matter of the expert opinion is so related to some business or profession or occupation as to be beyond the understanding of the average layman or juror. The court found that as a matter of law, the third criteria here was satisfied, but remanded the case for an evaluation on the two other criteria. So on remand, when they looked at this again... Dr. Walker's testimony was again found inadmissible. So I'm like exhausted just thinking about all of these procedures here. Yeah, and this what is they're pretty talking complex. About. It is. So the court concluded that the depth of the study in the field had not yet reached the point where an expert could give testimony about battered woman syndrome and its effects on the defendant with any degree of certainty. So basically you have a judge. When they say the court, they mean a judge, right? So this judge is going, hmm, she wrote her book on this in 1979. It's only 1982. I am just saying that it's not at a point where it's certain enough. You know what that sounds like to me? I know really, there's a there's a, a really great scene in the in the series adaptation of Hunting for the Unabomber when yes. there's a scene. I mean, it didn't really happen yes. this way, but it's a fictionalized version of a scene between Ted Kaczynski and the FBI researcher saying, "Yeah, I found you because I'm a forensic linguist," and he was able to go, "Yeah, mm. that doesn't exist." So good <laughs> right. luck trying to use that. Like you may have something, but you'll never be able because he was smart enough to know that the the court slash judge does really rely and really, you know, we both understand why. I mean, like if anybody just comes up with some kind of cockamamie theory, yeah, like the, the whole vaccine thing, like like the anti-vaxxers now go right. off the, a, a completely disproved bullshit study 
And what if that had become sort of the rule of law? That would have been horrific to yeah. the healthcare in this country. So that's very interesting how that ties together. I understand the judge's reluctance to like fully set a precedent for something that yeah. still needed more research. But yeah, yikes. I mean, everything's got to start somewhere, right? I mean, exactly. I guess we had to have this Hawthorne versus the state case to even get started, but it's it's unfortunate and so here, here's like the next chapter to it. And it's really the psych world meeting the legal world because after this happened, the American Psychological Association actually filed an amicus brief arguing that the argument that the state of the scientific knowledge supported a reasonable expert opinion merely calls for proof that the expert's methodology is generally accepted by the relevant scientific community and does not require proof that the expert opinion be unanimous or that the expert's methodology is infallible. And then second, they argued that the methodology used by psychologists studying battered women is generally accepted by the relevant scientific community. And accordingly, the state of scientific knowledge supports a reasonable expert opinion on battered women's syndrome. So you have the APA speaking up. What do you think happened? <laughs> the district They're not going to listen to it. They, yeah. they never listen to us. But that's a great <laughs> argument. That's a great argument and a legit foundation for saying this is real because we're doing inductive reasoning. We're taking yeah. all of the existing literature that is in the periphery of this particular issue and we're showing that there is enough solid research to support right. what's going on. Yeah, we, we can talk about trauma ad nauseum. We can talk about the impacts and you know delayed responses and things like that. It's just, it's in the context now of something that feels new. So yeah, the District Court of Appeals of Florida declined to follow the APA's arguments and affirmed in part holding that the trial court's refusal to admit Dr. Walker's testimony on battered women's syndrome was not an abuse of discretion under the circumstances. So the case was remanded on improper evidentiary procedures, however, and the court stated that its holding did not preclude the reintroduction of Dr. Walker's testimony at a new trial. I could not find what happened to this poor woman. <laughs> so I'm sorry, I, I'm leaving you guys without any resolve of what happened in her case. But, but if anybody knows, anybody is familiar with this or has uh, access to maybe LexisNexis, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of stuff that's awesome. online now. But if you know, post online because we'd love to know. But it, it was more about just... I thought it was so interesting that the APA spoke up enough to say, hey, let us file a brief to say we we support what's going on here. And unfortunately, it, it resulted in this woman not getting Dr. Walker to testify on her behalf. Right. So just another delay. And we're giving you a timeline where we're showing, you know, this is 1982. Now, let's jump forward into 1992 another case called Bechtel versus the state. And this is a case out of Oklahoma where Donna Bechtel murdered her abusive husband during conflict. He was completely intoxicated and repeatedly bashing her head into the floor. When the beating stopped, he finally passed out. She armed herself with a gun, shooting him dead. So Ms. Bechtel had been a victim of ongoing physical abuse at the hands of her husband. And there were at least 23 documented incidents uh, of violence between the two. She was charged with first-degree murder, and during her trial, her defense was not allowed to argue that she was a victim of battered woman syndrome. 
court held an in-camera review of the expert witnesses on battered woman syndrome, and the trial judge refused the testimony on BWS to be heard because he found a general lack of acceptance of the theory in the psych community since the syndrome was not published in the DSM, which is a complete misunderstanding I know. of how these things work. So well, here I we are. That's where his later. bar was. Yeah, I know. Ugh. But Donna was convicted of this and she appealed. So now in the appeal process, the issue at hand is, should jurors have been allowed to hear testimony on battered woman syndrome as part of a self-defense defense? The appeals judge found that yes, battered woman syndrome is a scientifically validated theory warranting expert testimony. Yay, so give this, this is a job, very big deal. Give this very judge big, a cookie. <laughs> right. This is a judge that was able to, unlike 10 years before, was able to go, no, there's there's enough research here. And this is an individual who is an expert in this area and can, can uh, fill that need here in this process. So here's the quote that we have from this. The trial court erred in not allowing testimony on the syndrome. A battered woman is repeatedly subjected to forceful, physical or psychological behavior by a man in order to coerce her to do something that he wants her to do without any concern for her rights. The woman must go through the battering cycle at least twice. A person is justified in using self-defense if that person reasonably believes that the use of deadly force was necessary to protect herself from imminent danger or great bodily harm. The word imminent must envelop the battered woman's perceptions based on all of the facts and circumstances of her relationship with the perpetrator. So that really spells mm-hmm. it out very, mm-hmm. very plainly. Bechtel was convicted in 1984 and 1987 of first-degree murder. In 1992, Bechtel was just exhausted by this whole process. She could not face the process of a third trial. So she walked out of court, a free woman, after pleading guilty to manslaughter. And then she'd already served time. Yeah. So I think that there was a process of letting her out based on the time that she had already served because she pled to a lesser charge. Exactly, exactly. So what has been documented as a synopsis of the rule of law here is that a battered woman may kill her mate during the period of threat that precedes the violent incident, immediately before the violence escalates, or may take action during the lull in an assaultive incident as long as, if given the circumstances, she perceived the danger of serious bodily harm as eminent. So bottom line, battered woman syndrome is not a defense in and of itself. It's evidence used to illustrate a claim of self-defense. And the role of an expert witness in a criminal case involving battered woman syndrome should really be limited to assisting the trier of fact in understanding the defendant's experiences and actions. It's not to excuse them. It's not to be a trier of fact themselves. It's to give an education about what is happening for this person. It's very interesting also to look at this rule of law about something that is so horrific for everyone involved and have it broken down. It's okay for it to happen during these times. Like, I know I'm, I'm reading it in a particular way, but that's the way law works. And it has to be spelled out very succinctly for people to understand immediately, like my nihilistic ass was looking at it going, somebody's going to look at this and go, huh, okay, Hmm. I've been wanting to get rid of him for the insurance money. You know, totally try and gone girl 
the right, whole thing, right. right? But hopefully that's that's an even more rare occurrence. Definitely. And that would not be happening. So while there have been some really great media portrayals of this particularly horrific, terrible phenomenon, one really sits above the rest for a number of reasons. And here are the reasons. And some of you probably already know what this is. It's the quality of the production. It was very well done. The quality and performance of the actors who all just knocked it out of the park. The historical accuracy of the production. And the historical accuracy that I'm referring to is the legal proceedings. So it was very, very factual and accurate about what the spirit of the times was, including the era in which the production occurred and the incident occurred. Also, the medium in which the production occurred, which was television, reaching a much larger audience than going to a movie theater. Yeah. And then also, finally, the cultural impact that this production had. So what am I talking about? I'm talking about the media portrayal being the made-for-TV movie, The Burning Bed, starring former Charlie's Angels actress Farrah Fawcett Majors, who was, of course, at the time married to my second childhood crush, Lee Majors. That's another story. (laughs) For those of you too young to remember, made-for-TV movies were huge. They were absolutely huge through the late 60s into probably the mid 80s. These were network productions in the early 1960s all the way through the 80s. Remember, at that time, there were only three major networks. So it's like... So these were few and far between. Few and far between. And they were events. And you didn't... There was like no taping. It's like, what? There's going to be a horror movie on on NBC and they're going to put it on at 8 o'clock. We got to be there. These were... This was must-see TV before people could tape things. So they were created ostensibly to be an incentive for movie audiences to stay home and watch what was going to be promoted as really the equivalent of what would have been a major motion picture release. They really wildly varied in quality. Some of them were just awful, but also some of them really pushed the envelope for television at the time. Burning Bed being one of them and a couple of um, horror movies that were made that weren't explicitly gory, but were some of the most terrifying things I've ever seen. Like I'm trying to remember what the name of one of them was. Like the people in the stairs or the people under the house or the people in the people under the stairs, under the stairs. That yeah. one, terrifying TV movie. Well, and at first I'm like, oh man, this is such a cultural phenomenon. The movie, The Burning Bed, it was just made for TV. But then when you put it into the context of, well, that's why it was a cultural phenomenon because yes. it was coming into people's homes. You didn't have to like go buy a ticket and go see this movie about this disturbing reality that people weren't talking about. I exactly. Mean, I thought exactly. it was uncomfortable in some households to be watching this. I'm sure it was very uncomfortable, but that's the other part is that when you're buying a ticket to a movie, if you can afford to do that, even though tickets were relatively inexpensive at that time, you are going to something that you're choosing to go see rather than like, oh, well, this is a big deal. And this was based on something that actually happened. You know, I'm going to watch it at home. But I agree with you. I bet there were some really uncomfortable conversations that happened as a result. So the burning bed, it's the story of Francine Moran Hughes. She's an American woman who set fire to the bed in which her live-in ex-husband Mickey Hughes was sleeping. Her actions were in response to 13 years of domestic abuse and immediately following a brutal beating that she endured while he was in an alcoholic rage. So what happened was he literally beat her almost to death. Then he passed out because he was drinking so much. She packed her kids in the car. She went back in the house. She poured gasoline on the bed where Mickey was passed out in his stupor. And then she lit the mattress on fire. She left the house 
got in the car, drove directly to the police station, and confessed her actions. During her trial, she was found not guilty by reason of of temporary insanity, which is really amazing because even back then, nobody was getting away with that defense. I mean, we've talked about that in previous episodes. NGI uh, is just rarely, rarely done. And especially as, as time has moved on, we just don't see that anymore. Her case was one of the first involving battered women's syndrome as a defense. So there's some very interesting things to note about Hughes's background because you set up earlier, what's the profile? And the profile can be anybody Mm -hmm. except for a couple of factors that are interesting and likely play a big part. Um, Basically from about people's background and upbringing. She came from a family where her father, a farm worker, was a horrifically abusive alcoholic to her mom and to the kids in the family. She married Mickey very early at age 16. I mean, that was early, even for the times that was early and immediately began having children. Mickey was very controlling. He did not want her pursuing an education because education generally means freedom. He didn't want anybody smarter or more accomplished than him in the house. She finally was able to divorce Mickey in 1971. However, she allowed him to move back in the house after he was severely injured in a car accident. And at the time of trial, when she was asked about this, she said that she didn't want him hurting than he already had been hurt in the accident. That was the reason that she let him back in the house. And there was a lot of influence by her mom as to like, well, like you're supposed to take care of him, even though he's not your husband anymore. He's the father of your children. And now, you know, we know that the mom was a victim of violence as well from Francis's father. And hold that thought because we okay. come back to that in a second. I want you to hold that because it's Got very it. interesting. But look, as soon as Mickey was more mobile, started drinking again, escalated very quickly, and he refused to leave the house. And it went on for several years of him just rampaging drunk through the house, terrifying the children, destroying the property, destroying furniture. And he's even reported to have killed his daughter's cat and regularly beaten Francine going so far as to, and then making her burn her school books as well. Oh yeah. Because she she was pursuing her GED, which then later on went on to higher education. So by this time, she's completely terrified of being able to get him out of the house because He is more mobile now. He's gotten back his mobility. He's increasingly volatile. He's increasingly under the influence of alcohol. So it's the tensions are definitely rising. She returned to her home from school on March 9th, 1977. Mickey was angry and already drunk. And he began taunting her again about her education. He began to physically assault her, prompting her to call the police. And as the police were not there to witness the violence... They declined to arrest Mickey. There was a female officer on site. She was one of the ones that was called out. And she later testified at trial that Francine had turned to her and said, it's all over because I've called the police. If you Mm go, I'll die. If you go without taking him, I'll die. That gives me chills. Interesting that the officer testified to this on the stand. So after the police leave, Mickey began a series of escalating humiliations and physical assaults, including raping her. He had destroyed the dinner for the kids, like swiping all of it off the table onto the floor, made her clean it up into a garbage can. Then he took the garbage can, dumped it on the floor again forcing her down on the floor to clean it up. Then sexually assaulted her, brutally raped her, and she decided that the only way to keep this pattern of life from happening again was to burn the house down. 
Yeah. So, and in, in the movie, I love how they depict this because it's basically her trial and she's on the stand testifying to what happened. Yes. And as she's talking about each phase, it's a, you know, they're going back and showing what happened and kind of outlining it like that. So you're seeing her put together on the stand, obviously... Farrah Fawcett does a wonderful job, but then with each sort of event that they're leading her through, they go back and do a flashback to each of these scenes. Yeah. So like I said before, she set the mattress on fire, ended up burning down the house. She drove herself and her kids to the police station. She confessed to setting the fire and moving forward after all of her testimony, she was found not guilty by reason of temporary insanity at that follow-up trial with both the prosecution and the defense agreeing that Francine's situation was extraordinary. Mm. So the history of IPV in this case was thought to have provided a foundation of sympathy for Francine, although none of the jurors has ever confirmed publicly whether that was a factor in their decision. So that's very interesting that they've all been very hush about the process. Mm. And interesting, you brought up mom. Her mother was reported to have said to her later, well, you did what was best for your husband. Yeah, for, forget you and the kids. Do what's best for that guy. Uh, yeah, like, well, it's just, it's twisted on a number of levels. But yeah. then again, what we're laying the groundwork here in this episode is understanding how your thinking becomes warped when oh, you were a victim of this type of systematic abuse. It's terrible. Yeah. Francine died at age 69 in Layton, Alabama, following a very long and successful career as a nurse at nursing mm -hmm. homes. After she retired, she taught nursing as well as provided one-on-one -on -one care for elderly friends and neighbors. Oh. Um, yeah, she was just turned out to be an amazing, amazing lady. Now, the Burning Bed premiered with a significant broadcast share. I mean, that's not really a term that's used anymore because no. of streaming. <laughs> but back in the day, it was a big deal. It got like over 30% of viewer share, which is phenomenal. It made it the 17th highest rated movie to air on network television and NBC's highest rated television movie ever. Many years later, television critic Matt Zoller cites stated that The Burning Bed is a landmark in terms of content, depicting domestic violence as, quote, an unambiguous horror show and a human rights violation, close wow. quote. What a great description of that. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't get any more pivotal as far as what we're talking about here today. Exactly. And, but I know, love that your case, this next one, oh my gosh. is another even further kink of it, right? Right, because I... I didn't really want to talk about two... You get triggered by this case. We've had conversations cases. about this. It, well, it's been done. No, this one's been done a lot, right? Yeah, this this has. And so I thought this was just interesting to bring this up as a twist because so far, and rightly so, we've talked about the extreme amount of understanding and empathy that we have for these women who have perpetrated these murders. And I think you and I walk that line of really trying to push our audience to understand the backgrounds and the makeup and that people just aren't born this way, right? That they're something, something's going on there. Even if we think they're total psychopaths and shitheads and horrible, horrible people, <laughs> we, we try to garner some understanding. But yeah, this the the case of applying battered women's syndrome to Carla Harmolka is a tough one to get get your head around because of the horrific nature of the crimes. So it becomes controversial when you talk about people who have done things that seem above and beyond 
murdering their husbands and when other victims are involved. So can battered women's syndrome be so intense that a woman becomes an accomplice to some really terrible acts of violence. Carla Homolka is a Canadian serial killer who acted as an accomplice to her husband, Paul Bernardo, in the rape and murder of at least three minors in Ontario, Canada between 1990 and 1992. And they were dubbed the Ken and Barbie killers because of their traditional good looks. It was really hard to swallow the news when Carla was convicted of manslaughter and made to serve only 12 years for the murders of the two teenage girls, Leslie Mahaffey and Kristen French, as a result of a very controversial plea bargain with the prosecutors in Ontario, whereas Bernardo was convicted of those same murders, and he ended up receiving life imprisonment and a dangerous offender designation, which is the full max sentence that's allowed in Canada. So Carla insisted throughout this that she had been an unwilling accomplice in Bernardo's murders as a result of pervasive domestic violence. Interestingly, I just thought as a side note, I was able to find that on the psychopathy checklist, Bernardo, he scored a 35 out of 40, which is up there. And when you kind of hear the whole story about Carla, you're like, oh, I wonder where she falls on this. But she actually only scored a five out of 40. So if we're trying to decide, is she this wicked psychopath that snowed all of us or not? The psychopathy checklist says no. However, after she gets this plea deal and ends up testifying against her husband, videotapes of the crime surface showing that Carla was probably a more active participant than she had originally claimed, including the rape and likely accidental death of her own teenage sister, Tammy Homoka. So as a result, the deal that she struck with the prosecutors was dubbed in the Canadian press as the deal with the devil. And there was a lot of public outrage about the plea deal that continued um, on up to 2005 when she was released from prison and started her life over again. But in Bernardo's trial, there was a psychologist, Peter Jaffe, who testified that a severely battered woman can become an accomplice to rape and murder to protect herself and appease her abuser. And in most of his testimony for the prosecution, he explained and applied battered woman syndrome directly to Carla. He testified that, quote, the idea that the doors are not locked and she can walk out anytime is a myth. Women are held by chains you can't see, by fear and control. A severely battered woman will stay with the abuser and often has to be dragged from her home by police or a family member, or if the abuse escalates further, in a body bag. So I don't disagree with what he's saying here. Um, I I think it sounds like a very dramatic way of trying to get this information across to a jury as it should be. I think it needs to be impactful. But in this case... It just makes it hard. Like you were saying, the, the tapes make it really hard because it takes us out of a more objective place, looking at research and looking at facts into hearing someone, seeing her be seductive and mirroring his behaviors. I think that's very difficult, but we're talking about a very uncomfortable gray area that you spelled out very well. Yeah. I'm open enough to say that 
you know, this could absolutely be the case. I, I think someone could be so abused that they could do things above and beyond what they would without this other person involved. It just does not feel right. And the way we think and the way we feel can be at odds with each other for sure. Absolutely. So the what the prosecutors were doing here, their goal was hoping that the psychologist's testimony would actually add credibility to Carla's accounts of the couple's attacks on the young girls in that it's sort of painting a picture against Bernardo. And Bernardo's defense attorney, John Rosen, cross-examined Carla, and he wanted to create the narrative that Carla was a self-centered woman who not only condoned her husband's violent fantasies, but really fueled them in this selfish quest for marital security. So that's, I think that's an interesting, that's a quote. So like just that terminology of like marital security. And then you have this opposite end of like, oh no, she was terrified of her husband and had to do these behaviors to make sure that you know, he didn't kill her as well. Or maybe both of those exist in the same universe. And we're talking about something that exists within a paradigm of patriarchy. Yes, It's difficult. And I'm not, I don't, and I don't, I'm not enough of an expert on this particular case. I just know that it just, there have been reports of women who have supported criminal activities by their partners because they don't have a way out. They absolutely don't have a way out. And even though this is the eighties, which would have been, you know, supposedly enough of a time and a situation where a woman can make her own informed decision. I think that it always goes back to that foundation and boundaries start to erode when a perpetrator wears away at them by persistent and unstopping violence and intimidation. Yeah, I, I really think this case is an anomaly of a lot of different factors. Definitely. Um, Not just like what we've talked about today, but even, you know, when we do see like a team of two perpetrators doing serial killings together, and usually it's, it's two men, you know, there is typically a more dominant personality there. And would the other person have followed through or done any of this without that more um, dominant personality that's pushing them towards that culpable yes definitely um and thank goodness you know she went to prison for some amount of time but uh i just i just think this is a really unique intersection of a lot of different things that we've talked about before right Um, and let me let me also say i love that you gave us the the contrast of the two psychopathy scale scores mm mm-hmm I would like to also say that just because she scored incredibly low on the psychopathy checklist doesn't mean that she didn't score incredibly high on other very concerning personality factors. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Good. Like, so that's that's something to look at, too, that there are other things that contributed to this. Yes. Uh, If you want more on Carla Homolka, definitely go and listen to Women in Crime. They have a great episode on her that goes into greater detail. Um, So highly, highly recommend. But that's that's a difficult one. It is. This would be a great get vocal if we if if we end up having time for it to maybe invite them on and talk about talk about this. We do have some more media presentations as runner ups. I think that Burning Bed really kind of takes the cake. Yeah, for sure. And Carla Homolka and Bernardo has been done so many times on investigation discovery shows and Dateline that like it might as well 
be another there on the list. But as far as big budget movies, there are a couple that are good, but good and sort of schlocky presentations, I think. (laughs) Sleeping with the Enemy, you know, it's over 20 years old. It's uh, Julia Roberts and Patrick Bergen. Oh my Um, God. Like I said, I was in junior high when that came out. It was scary. I remember seeing it. Terrifying. Right. Because Patrick Bergen, he's an Irish actor, very handsome, played such an icy psychopath. It wasn't just like, it wasn't like Paul. Let me also say this about Burning Bad. Paul Lamatt, who played Hughes, Mm-hmm. played him absolutely as the most despicable. I mean, right. he's an awful, awful person. And and Paul Lamatt is a great actor. And unfortunately, his career took a dive after a while from playing that. He was uh. only invited to play heavies and he's a very talented actor all the way. And he's, you know, worked for many years. So people um, had like an adverse reaction to that character. Yeah, that, that happens wow. when you play that kind of character. And Patrick Bergen, I just remember like, there were so many great ways the movie showed these scenes when she's unloading groceries and she has to make oh, sure yes. that all of the labels are turned and put in specific ways. I mean, she's yeah. already been, you think that she's at the point of helplessness, like right. you were talking about, of this learned helplessness. And then she concocts a really great plan to remove herself from the situation that unfortunately has like a, a twist to it. If mm-hmm. you haven't seen it, I really highly recommend Very it. Good. One I don't recommend <laughs> is Enough. <laughs> with Jennifer Lopez. Um, the trailers I, are almost identical, by the way. I went and watched both of them last really? night and I was like, oh my gosh, this is so funny. But, well, and yeah. it's not because of her performance and it's not because of wonderful Billy Camel's. Billy Campbell plays a, mm-hmm. a really creepy, creepy psychopath, but it's because it's this, there's a focus on her preparing herself physically to go after. She basically gets out of prison as a setup that he puts on her and then she's going to go after and get revenge. And she ends up killing him by goading him into violence. And the fight choreography is really fun. That part is really great, but I don't think it necessarily gives a lot of respect to the actual experience of battered woman syndrome. So those are just a couple. I mean, there's a lot more out there. There are even some from Oxygen. There was one with Crystal Bernard that is hilarious, but I can't (laughs) even remember the name of it. So I remember being in junior high and my friend Jenny, her dad did something in like film marketing or whatever, but he could get the movie posters for movies. And so she was always like, let me know if there's a movie that comes out that you'd like one. And so sleeping with the enemy was like all the rage. And, you know, every young girl thought Julia Roberts was just amazing. And so I was like, Hey, if you can get me one of those sleeping with the enemy ones, that'd be awesome. And she's like, Oh yeah, I'm going to get one. So I remember her showing up to, to school and she has the poster tube and she hands it to me and I'm so excited. And I get home and I open it up and it's all in Spanish. (laughs) And I was like, I don't know what this says, but this is amazing. <laughs> That's even better. I love it. That it was kind of cool, Spanish. right? It was like, um, ooh, is this a collector's edition? I like it. But it's just so funny that I opened it up and I was like, oh, okay, I'll take it. I'll take it. You know, for all of us talking about like the schlocky versions, I did want to say something that is like we haven't really sort of put on as a bullet point for us to to branch off. But, you know, intimate partner violence is a silent killer in many ways. It is like a virus that propagates and can go really unrecognized for so many factors. And 
there are going to be so many times that you're going to be in the position if you if you have someone who is being battered where you're going to try and intervene and it will be put down it will be brushed away minimized mm-hmm. this is one of those things and i like as somebody who has had my nose in many people's lives over many decades and not rightfully so in many times this is one of the situations where if you see something then you say something yeah. you take action i don't want anyone to endanger themselves Um, by putting themselves into a drama that may have some kind of violence perpetrated on you. But do whatever you can to get the person to understand that there is a cycle of violence and that there is a stat that shows by about the fifth or sixth time, you're probably not going to survive. You need to know that. And sometimes a person will not think enough of themselves because they've been battered so much. Use whatever you can that you're important to me, you're important to life, you're important to your kids, you're important to your family. Get away from this. You know, you just try and extricate them in any way you can. Beautifully said. And thank you for that call to action because it's it's such a helpless feeling to be someone that knows or feels like you know that's what's going on. Yeah. So just as we wrap up, speaking of women in crime, it's been announced that we're going to be doing a panel discussion with Dr. Amy and Dr. Megan on the Sherry Papini case at the True Crime Podcast Festival in Dallas in August. So I know everyone is always wildly interested in that case. And now that there's been more development this year... That's going to be awesome. I just can't wait to dive in. I'm very excited. I mean, we love them and we have done a couple of fascinating crossover episodes in the past. This is going to be another one of those where I think we're just going to have a really great time getting as deep as you possibly can within the time frame they give us. And I hope they give us enough time. Yes. Well, hopefully with four doctors brains put together we can uh (laughs) unravel some of the motives of course you know you you and i will be talking about people who falsify victimization which we've talked about in the past and the good doctors criminologists can talk about behavior for the audience so hopefully that will also be recorded so those of you that can't go maybe we can release that at some point but please try to make your way to dallas because we will be there and there's other exciting stuff coming after that august is just like the kickoff for all sorts of things we have planned. Absolutely. So thank you guys so much for sticking with us through this long and incredibly dense episode. If you know someone that's hurting, why don't you just send them a link to the episode so they can maybe get a little more educated and know that they're not alone. We'd appreciate that if you do it. And we will see you next time on LA. Not so. Confidential. Bye-bye. Bye folks. See you soon. We sincerely thank you for spending some time with us today. LA Not So Confidential is part of the Crawl Space Media Network. Each episode is hosted, produced, and written by Dr. Scott and Dr. Shiloh. Our podcast production editing and sweetening magic is handled by the multi-talented Jason Esri of Ear Cult Productions. The LA Not So Confidential theme entitled Cool Vibes Film Noir is used via a Creative Commons attribution license. Cool Vibes is composed and performed by Kevin McLeod, who graciously allows us to use his great music Please check out his amazing work on YouTube. All of the resources for each episode can be found on our website at la-not-so-confidential.com. You can find us on Instagram at LA Not So Podcast, on Twitter at LA Not So Pod, and on Facebook at LA Not So Confidential. 
Please hit follow so you never miss a new episode. Lastly, we'd be honored if you joined our Patreon at patreon.com slash podcast so you can be the first to be notified about upcoming live events, social gatherings, and super cool swag coming your way. Thanks for listening and please join us each Saturday afternoon following the episode drop for a live streaming and very interactive broadcast on Get Vocal entitled Behind the Couch. Thanks for listening and join us next time.